This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Clote, and here's what's coming up. Uh, amongst the role and functions of the Security Council, there was no mention that it has a role to do with deploying of the police officer. The thinking was that only the armed forces can be sent or deployed outside the territory of the country. That was Dr. Francis Kayundi, an assistant professor of international law in Nairobi, speaking about a court ruling on Kenya's plan to send police officers to Haiti. Also, ECOWAS nations dismayed by redrawal of Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger. South Africa is cracking down on people entering the country illegally. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. Sierra Leone's foreign minister says it's important for regional bloc ECOWAS to re-engage with the three countries that announced their immediate withdrawal from the group. Timothy Musakaba has been leading ECOWAS foreign minister's negotiation efforts with Niger. He also says it is important to find solutions to return the countries to constitutional rule. His remarks come after Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso jointly announced their withdrawal without delay from ECOWAS saying the bloc has become a threat to member states. For more reaction and the latest update, I reach Kaba by phone. Frustrating, disappointing and utter dismay. Nonetheless, hope is not lost. Niger, Burkina Faso, and Mali are very important components of the West African bloc. ECOWAS, over the period, has been mediating with these countries to bring these countries back to constitutional rule. Unfortunately, um, on Sunday, three countries came together and made a pronouncement that they ceased existing as members of the ECOWAS community. Um, this is not good news. Uh, these three countries have a common characteristics. These countries are threatened by terrorist activities and, uh, and, um, and internal politics. And so it is very important that um, ECOWAS, um, you know, re-engages these countries and uh, have them to come to the table and for us to discuss as a community to advance our common aspiration as people of the West African bloc. Niger, particularly, I understand, was unhappy after a scheduled meeting for it to present its side of the argument to find a solution to their concerns, and that ECOWAS uh, basically refused to attend the meeting, for which reason they decided, okay, enough of this, we are getting out. Uh, how do you respond to it, especially since you have been leading the negotiation efforts with Niger? It's unfortunate, Peter, because um, I, I, I was myself in Abuja with my colleague foreign ministers that are part of the mediating, um, the, the mediating team. Uh, we were all bound uh, to travel to Niger on that very fateful day. And unfortunately, uh, in the morning hours, we couldn't um, get the landing permit from the Nigerian authorities. And many calls were made. And, and then uh, around midday, the landing permit was issued to the flight that was hired by ECOWAS. And, and when we were just about to board the flight to meet with our brothers in the Republic of Niger to start the negotiation, unfortunately, we learned that the aircraft that was hired by the ECOWAS Commission, um, you know, had technical difficulties. And so we, we could not fly that evening. And then ECOWAS immediately had a press release 
in which it expressed its utter uh, disappointment, uh, its utter regret in not having that mission, um, you know, uh, held on that very day. And it apologized to the authorities of uh, of Niger and, and requested that another day be scheduled for the, the, the mediation. Importance of this negotiation, the greater importance of bringing back these countries to constitutional order is for the collective prosperity, collective stability, peace and security of the West African bloc. I, I was going to ask you whether ECOWAS will still engage with uh, these countries, including Niger, to try to resolve this political impasse and the decision to move away from the regional bloc. But then some also are expressing concern that ECOWAS is unduly being influenced by powers that the outside Africa, for which reason they are uncomfortable to be members. Peter, these claims are not uncommon. And um, in, uh, during you know, uh, during uh, perilous times like these, people will be suspicious of each other. But I will tell you, um, the, um, in the 64th summit of the heads of state and government of the ECOWAS community, um, a, a public vote was, uh, was conducted where members, um, you know, selected Sierra Leone and Togo as the key mediators, um, you know, uh, between ECOWAS and the authorities of Niger to be backstopped by Nigeria and Benin. But um, largely, I will tell you, this is an ECOWAS endeavor, and it's an endeavor that is not adulterated by any external interest whatsoever. It is purely an ECOWAS aspiration for peace and security to be attained in these Sahelian countries and for West Africa in general to be peaceful and conducive for investment and for the development of the people of the West African community. Where do you think ECOWAS should go from here following this announcement of these countries deciding to pull out immediately? The rules of the game is if a member state wants to withdraw from the community, an application will be made which will be considered in a year. And, and, and I think uh, we have an opportunity now. Um, no formal letter or, uh, or, or such application of withdrawal has been so far uh, sent to the ECOWAS Commission. So we have an opportunity now uh, to engage with these member countries and to find a way out of this uh, deadlock. And I believe um, there could be legitimate reasons, uh, you know, but then at the end of the day, uh, the people of Niger, the people of uh, Burkina Faso and Mali constitute about 15% of the general population of West Africa and half the geographical size of the sub-region. And so therefore it is very important that these countries I remain to be part of ECOWAS. That was Sierra Leone Foreign Minister Timothy Musakaba speaking with me by phone. Italian Premier Giorgia Meloni is opening a summit of African leaders aimed at unveiling his country's big development plan for Africa. The Associated Press says the government is hoping the plan will help stem migration flows and forge a new relationship between Europe and the continent. Two dozen African leaders, top European Union and United Nations officials and representatives from international lending institutions were in Rome for the summit. Italy hopes its development plan will foster security and economic conditions that will create jobs in Africa and discourage Africans from making dangerous migrations across 
across the Mediterranean Sea. In her opening, Meloni outlined a series of pilot projects that would enable Africa to become a major exporter of energy to Europe, helping it ease its dependence on Russian energy. The plan involves pilot projects in areas such as education, healthcare, water, sanitation, agriculture and infrastructure. Kenyan President William Ruto says he will appeal a court ruling last week rejecting a planned deployment of Kenyan police officers to Haiti. Ruto promised last year that Kenya would lead a multinational force to help fight gangs in the troubled Caribbean nation, but critics challenge his legal authority to do so. Viewing Nairobi Bureau Chief Mariama Diallo has the story. Friday's court ruling didn't come as a surprise because procedure was not followed, said Dr. Francis Hayundi, assistant professor of international law at the United States International University, Africa, in Nairobi. Under Article 240 of the Constitution that talks about the National Security Council, uh, amongst the role and functions of the Security Council, there was no mention that it has a role to do with deploying of the police officers. The thinking was that only the armed forces can be sent or deployed outside the territory of the country and not the police service. The ruling also says that Kenya could have deployed its police officers only if a so-called reciprocal arrangement exists between the two nations. Hayundi told VOA that the court action puts President Ruto in a difficult position. Coming after the UN Security Council approved a Kenya-led multinational security force aimed at helping combat violent gangs in the troubled Caribbean nation. It's, it's a bit of a um, catch-22 situation, you know, mm-hmm. uh, being between a rock and a hard place, particularly for Kenya. And here we are talking about the executive. For those who believe in the rule of law, of course, it's victory. In a statement, Ruto's government reiterated its commitment to honoring the country's international obligations and says it will appeal the court ruling. That statement was welcomed by some in Haiti. A local Haitian says, quote, it's their country, they make their decisions, but as an ally country of Haiti, we are waiting for them. As the president says, it's not over yet, unquote. Hayundi says while the Kenya government has the right to appeal, he wonders on which grounds it plans to do so. It would be interesting to hear their grounds of appeal. Um, but that is a right they have. For me, I, I would suggest that the executive try and regularize or normalize that gap because if we don't have the legal framework, then no appeal can put in place uh, a legal framework. Tirana Hassan, Human Rights Watch executive director, told a UN Security Council meeting last week that while plans for the deployment of the Kenyan-led force have stalled, the situation for many Haitians has worsened. Killings? Kidnappings, sexual violence and other abuses continue at a staggering rate with criminal group activities and fighting, intensifying and spreading. The challenge to the deployment was brought to court by three petitioners, including opposition politician and constitutional lawyer Ekuru Alcott, who told VOA at the time the proposed deployment was unconstitutional. Reacting to the ruling on the social media platform X, formerly Twitter, Alcott pleaded for Ruto to accept the court's decision and called for the government to focus on providing security to troubled regions inside Kenya, including his own village. Mariama Jalu, VOA News, Nairobi.
You are listening to African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clote in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see viewerafrica.com. There, you will find all your favorite viewer radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out viewernews.com. Cameroon officials say there has been a fresh wave of separatist attacks, some of them targeting football fans cheering on Cameroon's national team in this year's African Cup of Nations in Ivory Coast. Separatists also attack road construction workers and destroy the equipment near the western border with Nigeria. Moki Edward Kenzeka reports from Yaoundé, Cameroon. Officials in Cameroon's English-speaking regions say at least three fans of the national soccer team, the Indomitable Lions, have been killed. Others were abducted in attacks that occurred as the team was taking part in the ongoing Africa Cup of Nations tournament in Ivory Coast. Ndithembong Elvis is the Secretary General of Cameroon's Football Federation in the Northwest region. I wish to use the last energy to condemn the attack on football lovers who are supporting the Lions. It is the same thing like you support a club in the Premier League and you are not based in England. So I find these acts of killing people, attacking people who are supporting the indomitable Lions of Cameroon as totally unacceptable. The Lions were eliminated by Nigeria on Saturday in the knockout stage of the tournament known as AFCON. Before the tournament, separatists fighting to carve out an independent English-speaking state from the predominantly French-speaking country threatened to attack English speakers supporting the team. On social media, the separatists said Cameroon selected Jay Clinton, an English speaker for the squad, to give an impression that there is perfect harmony between English and French speakers. The rebels said they would consider people who support the Lions as enemies of the struggle for independence. Football officials say people accused of watching Cameroon's matches were tortured, killed or abducted. The rebels also destroyed or stole televisions and radios. Tembom said despite the attacks, fans came out in huge numbers to cheer the Lions in zones that were considered safe. The government also says separatists attacked several dozen road construction workers and chased them away from sites in Dongamantung, an administrative unit near the border with Nigeria. Rogers Fogwe is the president of the Wimbom Cultural and Development Association in Dongamantung. Fogwe says it is unfortunate that separatists want to stop the construction of a road that links Dongamantung to the rest of Cameroon and ease access to Nigeria. He spoke via a messaging app from Bamenda, capital of the northwest region. It is very regrettable that such acts uh, are being perpetrated against a project which would permit people to travel conveniently and uh, cost-effectively to do business and move their sick to hospitals. So we condemn these acts of evil and um, we call on the community to be vigilant. Separatists claimed responsibility for the attack of the workers. On social media, they said the workers did not obey their instructions but gave no further details. Deben Chofor, the governor of Cameroon's northwest region, says troops have been deployed to stop the attacks. He also said fighters who surrender will be pardoned 
but troops will kill those who continue fighting. The separatist conflict broke out in 2016 when Anglophone Cameroonians protested discrimination by the Francophone majority. For VOA News, I'm Moki Edwin Kinzuka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Indian Navy says it has freed an Iranian fishing vessel that had been hijacked by pirates off the coast of Somalia. India deployed its warship INS Sumitra, which was on anti-piracy patrol off Somalia's coast after receiving a distress message from the fishing vessel. The Navy says it intercepted the vessel and then worked to coerce the hijackers to release the crew and boat. The French news agency AFP says the warship freed 17 crew members and released the fishing boat to continue its work. The hijacking fueled concerns about a resurgence of Indian Ocean raids by opportunistic pirates coming on top of a separate surge of attacks by Yemen's Iran-backed Houthi rebels. In South Africa, officials say thousands of people, including suspected terrorists, have been denied entry into the country since December 1st. Global law enforcement agencies have in recent years described Africa's most developed economy as a haven for international organized crime groups and terror cells, including members of the Islamic State. To curb this, the South African government recently formed the Border Management Authority. Darren Taylor reports. Crime analysts say lax immigration laws following the end of apartheid in 1994 made it easy for criminals and extremists to get into South Africa. That's when the ruling African National Congress, the ANC, implemented a policy of welcoming the world. Millions of people, many without legal documents, streamed into one of the continent's strongest economies. In recent years, there's been intense violence in South Africa involving mafia-like groups from across the world. Investigations have shown the criminals entered the country using false documents and bribed corrupt officials to remain indefinitely. Now, President Cyril Ramaphosa's administration says it's begun a crackdown on immigration, starting at all points of entry. The Commissioner of the Border Management Authority, Dr. Mike Masiapato, says most people denied entry into South Africa over the past two months were using invalid documents. So in this period, we talk about over 6,000 people that had been denied entry along those lines. He attributes recent refusals of entry and arrests to a new biometric system. It scans a person's face, eyes and fingerprints and sends the information to law enforcement databases across the world to identify fugitives and suspects. We can give an example here, for instance, of people that are considered to be involved in terror-related activities. In those instances, we wouldn't allow a terrorist, as it were, into the Republic. At the same time, there are those that are being sought by police services in other jurisdictions, and in those instances, we then allow our police services to be able to interface with them and be able to activate Interpol and be able to get those people processed accordingly. Police officials told VOA they're holding several terror suspects pending possible extradition to other countries. 
Masia Pato says his authorities also making it hard for people who don't have the correct documents to appear before immigration officers. Once that happens, then that is where your corruption actually emanates. So what we've started doing differently is to intensify access control into the port of entry. In that process, we then deploy the border guards at the entry points into the port, meaning that only people who are having the requisite documents are allowed in the port of entry. It then starts to make sure that our immigration officers are no longer that vulnerable and end up themselves having to engage with people without documentation and end up having to have some arrangements and then bribes get paid. Masia Pato says the stricter measures are not preventing legitimate travellers, asylum seekers and refugees from coming into South Africa. But a researcher at the Lawyers for Human Rights group, Jehofatso Matapo, says corruption levels at the immigration department remain shockingly high, with officials expecting even legal migrants to pay huge bribes for documents like residence permits. These are issues that are ongoing. You know, um, the corruption is nothing new. Organizations after organizations have written reports and given recommendations. Even though these officials are officials that are usually named and there's never a transparent process as to what exactly happened. So nobody ever knows whether anyone was ever held accountable for this. Minister of Home Affairs Aaron Motswaledi told VOA several corrupt immigration officials have been arrested recently and that he's determined to clean up his department even more. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. In Mogadishu, the troubled capital of Somalia, elderly citizens gather every afternoon in the Bondere district for an archery contest. The activity is part of a deeper historical tradition. Jamal Ahmed Usman has more about this unique activity in this story narrated by Kevin Inox. Yusuf Bali Muhammad is in his early 60s and has been practicing archery for over two decades. He was once a hunter. He shares the history behind his favorite pastime. Yusuf says former freedom fighters used arrows and bows as weapons against invading forces. The target? A shoe, placed at a distance ranging between 200 and 400 meters. Some of these elders do not need glasses to hit the mark. Ali Hussein Ahmed Sandiri, a 63-year-old archer, has been practicing since he was 13 years old. Sandiri says it's a tradition handed down from one generation to the next. He says Islamic scholars say it was used for their liberation and that they should keep that legacy. Beyond the competition, these games are an opportunity for the elderly to get together as a community, Sandiri says. He says that the games are a gathering to have fun, offer prayers, and seek God's blessing. For these elders, it's a way to stay in touch with the past while exercising to stay young. For Jamal Ahmed Osman in Mogadishu, Somalia, Kevin Enix, VOA News. Pope Francis said in an interview published today that Africans are a special case. In the
the opposition of bishops and many other people in the continent to homosexuality. But he said he was confident that except for Africans, critics of his decision to allow blessings for same-sex couples would eventually understand it. He told the newspaper La Stampa that those who protest vehemently belong to a small ideological groups and also Africa for whom he said homosexuality is something bad. From a cultural point of view, they do not tolerate it. He said that when the blessings are given, priests should naturally take into account the context, the sensitivities, the places where one lives, and the most appropriate ways to do it. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clotty in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, David Vandy, and our engineer, John Cummings, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. <laughs>